you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. church. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we, we do thank you for your saving grace. We thank you the way you did it. And we thank you for the person who did it. That's you yourself when you manifested yourself in flesh our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray, as we look into this portion of Scripture, we pray and ask to feed us, O Lord. Help us to grasp your truth as we go through these verses. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. The world is a tremendous battleground where the forces under Satan and God's people are at war constantly. Satan and his forces are motivated by bitter hatred towards Jesus and his followers as they live their lives and they proclaim the gospel message. From all of the prayers of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, The one recorded in John 17 is the longest prayer where he prays for himself and the followers to come. Of course, for his disciples as well at the same time. His prayer plunged the reader into depths of the father and son interrelationship and their joint source of eternal life. His prayer encompasses redemptive history from election to his glorification and our glorification as well. Picking up things at verse 31, if you're following along from 1633, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus informs his disciples of the things to come, the things they will face, making them aware what to expect so when it hits them, they won't be afraid. They're able to endure. Nothing beats when you have knowledge of something. It helps quite a lot. And that is what Jesus is doing. Now the Christian battles are here to stay throughout the church age. Whether it's battling with our personal sin, standing up for moral values, or proclaiming the gospel. It's here to stay. The battles are here. The battles that believers have to go through in the Christian pilgrimage are more than at surface level. It's deeper than the surface level. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic power over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And John 17, 1, Jesus says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he spoke many things to them. But in a lot of verses, just prior to this portion of scripture, says when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will, be, will guide the disciples. They will have clarity. They will be able to understand the deep things of God. They will have direct access to God in prayer when they go in Jesus' name. Because they believe God sent Jesus. So they'll go to Jesus in his name. They will have peace as well in the midst of their tribulation. Now regardless of the opposition Jesus faces, he fulfilled his ordained mission. And so will the disciples as they proclaim the gospel. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The believer's joy, he talks about also, is here to stay throughout the church age. Why? Because Jesus overcomes the world. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.12, For everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So we know what we sign up for, right? Our world is changing rapidly. Even the people of God are being pushed to adapt the ways of the world. The package keeps changing to acclimatize on godly lifestyle. Not only the adults are being pushed to adapt, but young children are being indoctrinated to accept ungodly lifestyles. Parents, as you're well aware, you have to pray for your children and teach them at home. One day at church and once a year vacation Bible school helps, but that's not sufficient. You have to teach your children. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 6, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great milestone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. The day of reckoning is coming. There will always be some greater good promoted under the umbrella of love. But that take on love is not higher than God's moral laws. In the world we are now living in, either one will be discerning or one will be deceived. Not minimizing mental health, but it appears that it's legal to be a criminal in destroying people's lives and social values in society. Evil does not ease up by itself unless an opposite force opposes it. Isaiah 7, 9. If you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. 
Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That is what we're experiencing right now in this world. And Isaiah called him out. Said, Woe. Persecution is inevitable. And believers have to pray to endure holding on to God's timing to deal with this world. For as were in the days of Noah, so it will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus said, take heart. Take heart, I have overcome the world, and so shall his followers, for God is the believer's sanctuary. That's who we depend on. He's our refuge. Now throughout Jesus' life on earth, he has been glorifying God, and God has been glorifying him with convincing proof in his ministry, with profound teaching followed by his miracles. He performed. And as he looks ahead to death on the cross, he lifts up his eyes to heaven, acknowledging where God is, where his throne is, and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. In times of trouble, who is the first person you go to? Who is your first go-to person? We learn when on earth Jesus went first to his heavenly father with a concern that was wearing heavy upon his heart. Not to say he didn't have his disciples. Not to say we don't have church family to share things with, sure. But he went to the father first. That's always he goes. This was his pattern. Not only when trouble comes, he pray and make a trip to church. No, it was his pattern from the beginning to the end of his ministry. Marked by frequent times of prayer from his baptism to his ascension. That was his pattern. He prayed, Father, the hour has come. Now many times, Jesus' enemies had been unable to take him down because his hour had not come. Early in the gospel, he said, his hour had not come. But now he opened his prayer with, his hour has come. Redemptive history was about to be fulfilled. Plans made in eternity past are about to unfold. The hour has come in which the Son of Man would offer himself as a perfect and only atoning sacrifice for humanity's sin. The hour had come when the sinless one would be made sin for humanity, that they might become righteousness of God in him. The hour has come when Christ would cancel the certificate of death of humanity's sin by nailing them to the cross. 
The hour has come when the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah's death will be fulfilled. When the serpent's head would be bruised, when the suffering servant, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, would be pierced through for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities, and have the chastening of our well-being fall upon him. By him being scourged, we are healed. The hour has come. The hour has come when the shadows of the Old Testament sacrifice would give way to the final sacrifice, the Passover lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now as the hour is upon him, he prayed, Father, glorify your son. As a son or a daughter, do you recall those intimate talks you and your dad had and probably still have him? And the support that he's there for you, giving you the assurance that you can count on him. He's there for you. I hope you do. The Son is coming to the end of the finished work of salvation the Father had given him to do. He understands that the hour is his final week in bringing about the fulfillment that which God had promised to rescue his fallen, broken image bearers since the transgression in the Garden of Eden. The hour has come for him to do something. As if he's saying, come on, Dad, let's take sin on head on. Let's take it on. I'm ready. And the son knows the cost will be immense. But he also knows something else. He also knows that the glorious result would be eternal. The hour had come when God, through his son's sacrifice, will defeat sin, defeat death, and redeem a people for himself. The son is well aware of that. He came on the dad's mission, and he and the dad will take on sin head on. They're going for it. No return. Says, Father, glorify your son. In his prayer, Jesus asked the Father to reveal the glory of himself so that he can give the glory back to the Father. The Son and the Father glory is in the intertrinitarian Godhead relationship. One in purpose, one in nature, one in essence. Co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal. They're one. They're inter. You can't separate them. In John 13, 32, it says, If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. He will be glorified in himself by his death and resurrection on that coming weekend. 
and ascend 40 days after spending time with his disciples. Glory of himself, he will receive the adoration and worship and the love from the millions whose sins he bore and are forgiven by his Father to eternal life. We are part of that million, or we are part of those millions as we find ourselves in the sanctuary today adoring Jesus Christ and worshiping God through him. We are worshiping and proclaiming his name. That's what we're doing. We are part of that. The phrase, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, has been the theme of Jesus' life and ministry throughout the earth. That's what he's been doing. The Lord's request in his prayer was a sincere affirmation of the ordained plan of God. The plan had always been that the Son would glorify through the redemption of sinners on earth. And through the cross, or I would say, uh, and though the cross is the most shameful of deaths, the Son of God will display His infinite glory through it. What was the worst possible outcome will be in reality His ultimate glory. He was asking that the eternal plan of redemption be consummated exactly as has been ordained. He knows the plan. He was just waiting on the timing. He and the Father made the plan. That's why he left heaven to come on earth. In this prayer, Jesus requests that the Father would grant him glory through his death, resurrection, ascension, and coronation, just as had been planned in eternity past. What would appear to men to be a moment of supreme shame and humiliation would be in actuality a moment of Jesus' highest honor as God's marvelous plan of redemption is perfectly realized and being fulfilled. It is through the cross that all of God's saving purposes are made possible. Jesus will forever bear the scars of the cross and will be forever marked with honor for his accomplishment, exactly as he prayed to his Father. That is why when we go to the Father in prayer, we end our prayer in Jesus' name as he instructed his followers to do. Ask in my name. The interrelated relationship, of course, goes both ways. As the Son is glorified by the Father, the Father will be glorified by the Son's accomplishments. That's how it works. Here in the latter part of, the, of this verse... Jesus is not merely asking for his own glory to be revealed that Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday weekend. But his perfectly righteous request was that by his sacrifice, he might glorify the Father as he explained 
in verse two, in verses two and three. In verse two, he says, "For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him." The authority being granted to the Son by the Father was made possible through the cross. We can never forget Christianity without the cross. Without the cross, there is no Christianity. The cross made it very clear the wisdom of God's eternal plan of redemption. In 1 Corinthians 2, 8, he says, None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Jesus glorifies the Father by giving eternal life to those who believe in Him. It brings great glory to God and celebration in heaven when lost men and women are converted to walk in obedience. Not just to carry the name, the labels of Christian, but to walk in obedience. It brings glory to God. Jesus went on to explain life. In verse 3. Here the Lord called out himself. He called out his own name, Jesus Christ. And explained how eternal life is obtained. He said eternal life is knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The fact that he placed his name together with God the Father has been the joint source of eternal life. No Jesus, no eternal life. It's simple as that. He said back in John 14:1, trust in God, trust also in me. And when you understand the interrelated between Jesus and God, we'll see exactly what's going on here. You can't separate them. The people in Jesus' day, led by the religious authorities, had a problem. They accept God, even though they didn't know God. They experienced God, but they didn't know God, as was Jesus was teaching them. They accept God, but rejected Jesus as the saving Messiah. That's the problem. They rejected him. And Jesus is saying, eternal life is knowing God, the true God, and knowing me. Without me, you don't have eternal life. Jesus is saying that in essence of eternal life is participation in the blessed union with his son Jesus and his father. Eternal life on earth is enjoying intimate fellowship with God now and forever through Jesus Christ. It is the present day reality that carries into the new kingdom Ruled by Jesus Christ when we'll be there. We are going somewhere. In verse 4, 
He said, I glorified you on earth. He's speaking to his father. Father, I glorified you on earth. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, Jesus considered it done. It's, it will happen. He uttered these words. He speaks to the finished work. He had glorified the Father by his sinless life, by his miracles, and by suffering to death on the cross. He had finished the work of salvation the Father had given him to do. The crucifixion glorified the Father's wisdom, the Father's faithfulness, the Father's promise, the Father's holiness, the Father's justice, and the Father's love. The crucifixion did all of that completely. The crucifixion showed that the Father's wisdom in providing a plan for man in the fallen state, and he worked that plan to the finish. When Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross, that is why he said it is finished, done. He did it. The cross displays and revealed God's righteousness and his justice. Sin must be counted for. Sin has to be punished. God showed that his law's demands are satisfied in this precious blood of his son. A lamb unblemished and spotless as appropriation for his holy wrath against sin. God had to do something. And he did it through his son. That is love. Verse 5. He said, and now father, as he continued in his prayer... Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. His job is done. He's going back to where he came from. The NASAB translate, and now you, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. Don't get confused with God and Jesus. God manifest in flesh in Jesus. Jesus is God manifest in flesh, period. Don't get confused about it. That is why he and the Father are the source of eternal life. Before Christ came into the world, he dwelt in heaven with the Father. When he came among men, his deity was veiled in the role as a servant. He came as a servant. He's praying to the Father, let the original glory I shared with you before my incarnation be resumed. This prayer shows clearly the pre-existence of Christ before the foundation of the world. John 1 said, In the beginning was the Word, 
And the word was with God. And the word was God. After an earthly life of submission and humiliation, during his incarnation, Jesus was ready to return to full glory that awaited him at the Father's right hand. It was time for the coronation. Philippians 2, 9-11 Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. What are some things... What are some applications we can gather from, from these five verses? Jesus modeled a personal prayer with God. Jesus modeled an intimate relationship with his Father. In regards to his servanthood, Jesus modeled obedience to the mission of God. Jesus modeled confidence in God. What say to you if you're not a believer? Or what say to you if you're not following this model? And in regards to eternal life, Jesus' opposition in his day reject that God sent him as his savior to bring salvation. The source of eternal life is linked with God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. Many people talk about God these days, even in sub-religions, but they leave Jesus out. Not equating Jesus with God is no salvation. It's doomed eternal damnation. The source of eternal life is linked with God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. So as we go through life and as we pilgrimage here on earth, if we can remember some of these things, that we learn here, Jesus' personal prayer, his intimate relationship, obedience to the mission, his confidence in God, trust in God. Because Jesus overcomes the world. And that's the peace we have to go through life. I have overcome the world. And so shall we. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for modeling the relationship between you and the Father. 
And Lord, we pray that we will pursue in like manner in our relationship with you, our Abba Father. Amen.